The Moonstone, Part Forty Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. The Discovery of the Truth. Seventh Narrative. In a letter from Mr. Candy. Frizinghall, Wednesday, September the twenty-sixth, eighteen forty-nine. Dear Mr. Franklin Blake, you will anticipate the sad news I have to tell you on finding your letter to Ezra Jennings returned to you unopened in this enclosure. He died in my arms at sunrise on Wednesday last. I am not to blame for having failed to warn you that his end was at hand. He expressly forbade me to write to you. I am indebted to Mr. Franklin Blake, he said, for having seen some happy days. Don't distress him, Mr. Candy, don't distress him. His sufferings, up to the last six hours of his life, were terrible to see. In the intervals of remission, when his mind was clear, I entreated him to tell me of any relatives of his to whom I might write. He asked to be forgiven for refusing anything to me, and then he said, not bitterly, that he would die as he had lived forgotten and unknown. He maintained that resolution to the last. There is no hope now of making any discoveries concerning him. His story is a blank. The day before he died he told me where to find all his papers. I brought them to him on his bed. There was a little bundle of old letters which he put aside. There was his unfinished book. There was his diary in many locked volumes. He opened the volume for this year, and tore out, one by one, the pages relating to the time when you and he were together. "'Give those,' he said, to Mr. Franklin Blake. In years to come he may feel an interest in looking back at what is written there." Then he clasped his hands, and prayed God fervently to bless you and those dear to you. He said he should like to see you again but the next moment he altered his mind. "'No,' he answered, when I offered to write, "'I won't distress him. I won't distress him.' At his request I next collected the other papers, that is to say the bundle of letters, the unfinished book, and the volumes of the diary, and enclosed them all in one wrapper, sealed with my own seal. "'Promise,' he said, "'that you will put this into my coffin with your own hand, and that you will see that no other hand touches it afterwards. I gave him my promise, and the promise has been performed. He asked me to do one other thing for him, which it cost me a hard struggle to comply with. He said, Let my grave be forgotten. Give me your word of honour that you will allow no monument of any sort, not even the commonest tombstone, to mark the place of my burial. Let me sleep nameless. Let me rest unknown. When I tried to plead with him to alter his resolution, he became for the first and only time violently agitated. I could not bear to see it, and I gave way. Nothing but a little grass mound marks the place of his rest. In time the tombstones will rise around it, and the people who come after us will look and wonder at the nameless grave. As I have told you, for six hours before his death his sufferings ceased. He dozed a little. I think he dreamed. Once or twice he smiled. 
A woman's name, as I suppose, the name of Ella, was often on his lips at this time. A few minutes before the end he asked me to lift him on his pillow to see the sun rise through the window. He was very weak. His head fell on my shoulder. He whispered, "'It's coming.' Then he said, "'Kiss me.' I kissed his forehead. On a sudden he lifted his head. The sunlight touched his face. A beautiful expression, an angelic expression, came over it. He cried out three times, "'Peace! Peace! Peace!' His head sank back again on my shoulder, and the long trouble of his life was at an end. So he has gone from us. This was, I think, a great man, though the world never knew him. He had the sweetest temper I have ever met with. The loss of him makes me feel very lonely. Perhaps I have never been quite myself since my illness. Sometimes I think of giving up my practice and going away, and trying what some of the foreign baths and waters will do for me. It is reported here that you and Miss Verinder are to be married next month. Please to accept my best congratulations. The pages of my poor friend's journal are waiting for you at my house, sealed up with your name on the wrapper. I was afraid to trust them to the post. My best respects and good wishes attend Miss Verinder. I remain, dear Mr. Franklin Blake, truly yours. Thomas Candy Eighth Narrative Contributed by Gabriel Betteridge I am the person, as you remember, no doubt, who led the way in these pages and opened the story. I am also the person who is left behind, as it were, to close the story up. Let nobody suppose that I have any last words to say here concerning the Indian diamond. I hold that unlucky jewel in abhorrence, and I refer you to other authority than mine for such news of the moonstone as you may, at the present time, be expected to receive. My purpose in this place is to state a fact in the history of the family, which has been passed over by everybody, and which I won't allow to be disrespectfully smothered up in that way. The fact to which I allude is the marriage of Miss Rachel and Mr. Franklin Blake. This interesting event took place at our house in Yorkshire on Tuesday, October ninth, 1849. I had a new suit of clothes on the occasion, and the married couple went to spend the honeymoon in Scotland. Family festivals, having been rare enough at our house since my poor mistress's death, I own, on this occasion of the wedding, to having, towards the latter part of the day, taken a drop too much on the strength of it. If you have ever done the same sort of thing yourself, you will understand and feel for me. If you have not, you will very likely say, Disgusting old man, why does he tell us this? And the reason why is now to come. Having, then, taken my drop—bless you, you've got your favourite vice, too, and your vice isn't mine, and mine isn't yours—I next applied the one infallible remedy, that remedy being, as you know, Robinson Crusoe. Where I opened that unrivalled book I can't say. Where the lines of print at last left off running into each other, I know, however, perfectly well. It was at page 318, a domestic bit concerning Robinson Crusoe's marriage, as follows. With those thoughts I considered my new engagement, that I had a wife. Observe, 
so had Mr. Franklin. One child born, observe again, that might yet be Mr. Franklin's case too. And my wife then, what Robinson Crusoe's wife did or did not do then, I felt no desire to discover. I scored the bit about the child with my pencil, and put a morsel of paper for a mark to keep the place. Lie you there, I said, till the marriage of Mr. Franklin and Miss Rachel is some months older, and then we'll see. The months passed, more than I had bargained for, and no occasion presented itself for disturbing that mark in the book. It was not till this present month of November, 1850, that Mr. Franklin came into my room in high good spirits, and said, "'Betteridge, I have got some news for you. Something is going to happen in the house before we are many months older.' "'Does it concern the family, sir?' I asked. "'It decidedly concerns the family,' said Mr. Franklin. "'Has your good lady anything to do with it, if you please, sir?' "'She has a great deal to do with it,' says Mr. Franklin, beginning to look a little surprised. "'You needn't say a word more, sir,' I answered. "'God bless you both. I'm heartily glad to hear it.' Mr. Franklin stared like a person thunderstruck. "'May I venture to inquire where you got your information?' he asked. "'I only got mine, imparted in the strictest secrecy, five minutes since.' Here was an opportunity of producing Robinson Crusoe. Here was a chance of reading that domestic bit about the child which I had marked on the day of Mr. Franklin's marriage. I read those miraculous words with an emphasis which did them justice, and then I looked him severely in the face. "'Now, sir, do you believe in Robinson Crusoe?' I asked, with a solemnity suitable to the occasion. "'Betteridge,' says Mr. Franklin, with equal solemnity. I am convinced at last. He shook hands with me, and I felt that I had converted him. With the relationship of this extraordinary circumstance, my reappearance in these pages comes to an end. Let nobody laugh at the unique anecdote here related. You are welcome to be as merry as you please over everything else I have written. But when I write of Robinson Crusoe by the Lord it's serious, and I request you to take it accordingly. When this is said, all is said. Ladies and gentlemen, I make my bow and shut up the story. Epilogue The Finding of the Diamond 1. The Statement of Sergeant Cuff's Man 1849 On the 27th of June last, I received instructions from Sergeant Cuff to follow three men, suspected of murder, and described as Indians. They had been seen on the Tower Wharf that morning, embarking on board the steamer bound for Rotterdam. I left London by a steamer belonging to another company, which sailed on the morning of Thursday the 28th. Arriving at Rotterdam, I succeeded in finding the commander of the Wednesday steamer. He informed me that the Indians had certainly been passengers on board his vessel, but as far as Gravesend only. Off that place, one of the three had inquired at what time they would reach Calais. On being informed that the steamer was bound for Rotterdam, the spokesman of the party expressed the greatest surprise and distress at the mistake which he and his friends had made. They were all willing, he said, to sacrifice their passage money, if the commander of the steamer would only put them ashore. Commiserating their position as foreigners in a strange land, 
and knowing no reason for detaining them, the commander signalled for a shore boat, and the three men left the vessel. This proceeding of the Indians, having been plainly resolved on beforehand, as a means of preventing their being traced, I lost no time in returning to England. I left the steamer at Gravesend, and discovered that the Indians had gone from that place to London. Thence I again traced them as having left for Plymouth. Inquiries made at Plymouth proved that they had sailed forty-eight hours previously in the Bewley Castle, East Indiamen, bound direct to Bombay. On receiving this intelligence, Sergeant Cuff caused the authorities at Bombay to be communicated with overland, so that the vessel might be boarded by the police immediately on her entering the port. This step having been taken, my connection with the matter came to an end. I have heard nothing more of it since that time. 2. The Statement of the Captain, 1849 I am requested by Sergeant Cuff to set in writing certain facts concerning three men, believed to be Hindus, who were passengers last summer in the ship Bewley Castle, bound for Bombay direct, under my command. The Hindus joined us at Plymouth. On the passage out I heard no complaint of their conduct. They were berthed in the forward part of the vessel. I had but few occasions myself of personally noticing them. In the latter part of the voyage, we had the misfortune to be becalmed for three days and nights off the coast of India. I have not got the ship's journal to refer to, and I cannot now call to mind the latitude and longitude. As to our position, therefore, I am only able to state generally that the currents drifted us in toward the land, and that when the wind found us again, we reached our port in twenty-four hours afterwards. The discipline of a ship, as all seafaring persons know, becomes relaxed in a long calm. The discipline of my ship became relaxed. Certain gentlemen among the passengers got some of the smaller boats lowered, and amused themselves by rowing about and swimming, when the sun at evening time was cool enough to let them divert themselves in that way. The boats, when done with, ought to have been slung up again in their places. Instead of this they were left moored to the ship's side. What with the heat, and what with the vexation of the weather, neither officers nor men seemed to be in heart for their duty, while the calm lasted. On the third night nothing unusual was heard or seen by the watch on deck. When the morning came, the smallest of the boats was missing, and the three Hindus were next reported to be missing too. If these men had stolen the boat shortly after dark, which I have no doubt they did, we were near enough to the land to make it vain to send in pursuit of them when the discovery was made in the morning. I have no doubt they got ashore, in that calm weather, making all due allowance for fatigue and clumsy rowing, before daybreak. On reaching our port I there learnt for the first time the reason these passengers had for seizing their opportunity of escaping from the ship. I could only make the same statement to the authorities which I have made here. They considered me to blame for allowing the discipline of the vessel to be relaxed. I have expressed my regret on this score to them and to my owners. Since that time nothing has been heard, to my knowledge, of the three Hindus. I have no more to add to what is here written. 3. 
The Statement of Mr. Murthwaite, 1850 In a Letter to Mr. Brough Have you any recollection, my dear sir, of a semi-savage person whom you met out at dinner in London in the autumn of forty-eight? Permit me to remind you that the person's name was Murthwaite, and that you and he had a long conversation together after dinner. The talk related to an Indian diamond called the Moonstone, and to a conspiracy then in existence to get possession of the gem. Since that time I have been wandering in Central Asia. Thence I have drifted back to the scene of some of my past adventures in the north and northwest of India. About a fortnight since, I found myself in a certain district or province, but little known to Europeans, called Katiawa. Here an adventure befell me in which, incredible as it may appear, you are personally interested. In the wild regions of Katiawa, and how wild they are, you will understand, when I tell you that even the husbandmen plough the land armed to the teeth, the population is fanatically devoted to the old Hindu religion, to the ancient worship of Brahma and Vishnu. The few Mahometan families, thinly scattered about the villages in the interior, are afraid to taste meat of any kind. A Mahometan even suspected of killing that sacred animal, the cow, is, as a matter of course, put to death without mercy in these parts by the pious Hindu neighbours who surround him. To strengthen the religious enthusiasm of the people, two of the most famous shrines of Hindu pilgrimage are contained within the boundaries of Katiawa. One of them is Dwarka, the birthplace of the god Krishna. The other is the sacred city of Somnath, sacked and destroyed as long since as the eleventh century by the Mahometan conqueror Mahmud of Ghizni. Finding myself for the second time in these romantic regions, I resolved not to leave Katiawa without looking once more on the magnificent desolation of Somnath. At the place where I planned to do this, I was, as nearly as I could calculate it, some three days distant, journeying on foot from the sacred city. I had not been long on the road before I noticed that other people, by twos and threes, appeared to be travelling in the same direction as myself. To such of these as spoke to me, I gave myself out as a Hindu-Buddhist, from a distant province bound on a pilgrimage. It is needless to say that my dress was of the sort to carry out this description. Add that I know the language as well as I know my own, and that I am lean enough and brown enough to make it no easy matter to detect my European origin, and you'll understand that I passed muster with the people readily, not as one of themselves, but as a stranger from a distant part of their own country. On the second day the number of Hindus travelling in my direction had increased to fifties and hundreds. On the third day the throng had swollen to thousands, all slowly converging to one point—the city of Somnath. A trifling service which I was able to render to one of my fellow pilgrims during the third day's journey proved the means of introducing me to certain Hindus of the higher caste. From these men I learnt that the multitude was on its way to a great religious ceremony, which was to take place on a hill at a little distance from Somnath. The ceremony was in honour of the god of the moon, 
and it was to be held at night. The crowd detained us as we drew near to the place of celebration, and by the time we reached the hill the moon was high in the heaven. My Hindu friends possessed some special privileges which enabled them to gain access to the shrine. They kindly allowed me to accompany them. When we arrived at the place we found the shrine hidden from our view by a curtain hung between two magnificent trees. Beneath the trees a flat projection of rock jutted out, and formed a species of natural platform. Below this I stood, in company with my Hindu friends. Looking back down the hill, the view presented the grandest spectacle of nature and man in combination that I have ever seen. The lower slopes of the eminence melted imperceptibly into a grassy plain, the place of the meeting of three rivers. On one side the graceful winding of the waters stretched away, now visible, now hidden by trees as far as the eye could see. On the other the waveless ocean slept in the calm of the night. People this lovely scene with tens of thousands of human creatures, all dressed in white, stretching down the sides of the hill, overflowing into the plain, and fringing the nearer banks of the winding rivers. Light this halt of the pilgrims by the wild red flames of cressets and torches, streaming up at intervals from every part of the innumerable throng. Imagine the moonlight of the east, pouring in unclouded glory over all, and you will form some idea of the view that met me when I looked forth from the summit of the hill. A strain of plaintive music, played on stringed instruments and flutes, recalled my attention to the hidden shrine. I turned, and saw on the rocky platform the figures of three men. In the central figure of the three, I recognized the man to whom I had spoken in England, when the Indians appeared on the terrace at Lady Verinder's house. The other two, who had been his companions on that occasion, were no doubt his companions also on this. One of the spectators, near whom I was standing, saw me start. In a whisper he explained to me the apparition of the three figures on the platform of rock. They were Brahmins, he said, who had forfeited their caste in the service of the god. The god had commanded that their purification should be the purification by pilgrimage. On that night the three men were to part. In three separate directions they were to set forth as pilgrims to the shrines of India. Never more were they to look on each other's faces, never more were they to rest on their wanderings, from the day which witnessed their separation to the day which witnessed their death. As those words were whispered to me, the plaintive music ceased. The three men prostrated themselves on the rock, before the curtain which hid the shrine. They rose, they looked on one another, they embraced, then they descended separately among the people. The people made way for them in dead silence. In three different directions I saw the crowd part at one and the same moment. Slowly the grand white mass of the people closed together again. The track of the doomed men through the ranks of their fellow-mortals was obliterated. We saw them no more.
A new strain of music, loud and jubilant, rose from the hidden shrine. The crowd around me shuddered and pressed together. The curtain between the trees was drawn aside, and the shrine was disclosed to view. There, raised high on a throne, seated on his typical antelope, with his four arms stretching towards the four corners of the earth, there soared above us, dark and awful, in the mystic light of heaven, the god of the moon. And there, in the forehead of the deity, gleamed the yellow diamond, whose splendour had last shone on me in England from the bosom of a woman's dress. Yes, after the lapse of eight centuries, the moonstone looks forth once more over the walls of the sacred city in which its story first began. How it has found its way back to its wild native land, by what accident or by what crime the Indians regained possession of their sacred gem, may be in your knowledge, but is not in mine. You have lost sight of it in England, and, if I know anything of this people, you have lost sight of it for ever. So the years pass, and repeat each other. So the same events revolve in the cycles of time. What will be the next adventures of the Moonstone? Who can tell? End of Part 47 End of the Moonstone by Wilkie Collins